Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind. They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and Merry Christmas, or belated Hanukkah, or Saturnalia, early Kwanzaa, happy Festivus, whatever it is you celebrate this time of year. I hope it's filled with fun and joy and rejuvenation. Because, let's face it, we've earned it. By now, I've spoken plenty about one of my favorite parts of the holidays the tradition of telling ghost stories late at night around the fire. Something that somehow seems even more relevant this year, as most of us are tucked inside, away from the usual lights and merrymaking typical of the holidays. If you need a little more holiday horror in your life, we posted a classic Christmas Eve ghost story over on Patreon last night for just that reason. Algernon Blackwood's The Kit Bag If you're a supporter on Patreon, head over and check it out. And if not, well, it's a good time to sign up. As I mentioned last week, we also have a bonus story coming from our friends at Dark Matter magazine. That'll be dropping sometime in the next few days. My plan was for Boxing Day, but the chaos of the season sometimes seems to get in the way. Keep your ears peeled between now and New Year's, though, for a little extra holiday listening. (laughs) 
Our shout-out this week goes out to Joanne Kuhnline and, wait, did you hear that noise behind us? For your incredibly generous support on Patreon. Thanks for filling our stockings with so much more than coal this year. We'll put those severed body parts to good use, I promise. Speaking of dismembered bodies, someone you probably don't often associate with cannibalism or grisly acts of murder, depending on what your holiday movie-watching traditions are, I suppose, is our old friend in red. That most jolly and generous of holiday figures, Old St. Nick. But while the plump, rosy-cheeked modern-day Santa Claus has become a symbol for all that is good and warm and kind about the giving season, the adventures of his more historical version, in particular the tale that cemented him as the patron saint of children, wasn't always quite so jolly. There's a few versions of this tale, but all of them are equally grisly. The three young boys had been working hard in the field all day. Their job was to collect the fallen grain that was left behind after the reapers and gatherers had passed over the crop. Their small hands were perfect for the job, scooping the kernels from between the dried stalks, and their young bodies could more easily weather the constant bending. All day they walked and scooped and walked and scooped, they were lucky, though, to have each other to break the monotony of the work, and their efforts would frequently devolve into playing and joking and chasing each other around the field. Usually, they'd be forced back on track after only a few minutes, but somehow, today, they'd gone unnoticed by the older workers. And when they finally looked up from their game, twilight was already beginning to set in, and the field was empty. None of the three had paid particular attention to the direction they'd come from, and the fringes of forest that cut through the fields blocked the town and road from view. They began to head back in what they were sure was the direction of town, but there was no joking now. The approaching darkness and chill winds turned the mood somber. Through the trees, they spotted a building its warm lights alluring, a beacon of safety. After all day in the field, they were not only tired, but so very hungry, too. And there was a faint hint of something delicious on the breeze. As they approached the building, they spied a sign above the door. A butcher's shop. The delicious smells of smoked meats teased their empty stomachs and they rushed to knock on the door, tripping over and shoving each other to be the first to put knuckles to wood. Three loud raps, which were followed by a muffled screech of a chair on floorboards and the shuffle of footsteps toward the door. A thin band of amber light spilled across their faces as the butcher cracked open the door. The heat and delicious scents of cooking hit them like a wave, and they began to stammer their story. They'd lost their way and were so very hungry and tired. Could they spend the night? Have a bite to eat? They wouldn't be any trouble. They promised. They'd be on their way in the morning. The butcher's stern face softened, and he swung the door wide. Of course, he said inviting them in with the sweep of a meaty arm. He was a large, coarse man, a thin veil of plumpness, only barely hiding the thick, corded muscle beneath. He wore a leather apron, stained dark with old blood. The thick, dark hair on his face and arms shined greasy in the shop's light as he closed the door behind the boys. Sit, he said and motioned to the rough wooden table near the hearth. I'll fix you something. The boys obeyed, thankful for the warmth and hospitality, and eager to fill their bellies. The butcher turned to his cutting block, his back to them, and they could hear the swish, swish, swish 
of a knife on steel. There were jars lining the shelves, full of dried herbs and salts, and strings of garlic and peppers hung drying from the low rafters. The aromas within the shop were at once delicious and overpowering. Smoke and spices and cooked meats. But more acrid scents, too. Blood and lye and pickling brine. Despite their empty stomachs, their long day in the field and the warmth of the shop began to catch up to them. And one by one, their eyelids became heavy. One of the boys laced his arms on the table and lay his head on them, and it wasn't long before the other two also let the weariness of the day draw their heads down to the table to rest. So when the butcher loomed up behind them with the freshly honed knife in hand, the boys didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. Fast forward seven years. A knock comes on the butcher's door. It's nearing twilight, and the butcher had just sat down to a meager meal. The man shuffled to the door and cracked it just enough to peer out at his visitor. An imposing figure stared back at him through the gap, and the butcher stumbled backwards a step, pulling the door wide as he did. Tall and heavily bearded, the visitor strode into the butcher's shop without hesitation. His appearance was at once commanding and comforting, but the hard expression he wore left little doubt as to his intentions. There was no mistaking the man in red before him. The Bishop of Mira, Nicholas, and the butcher felt sure he knew why the man was there. The butcher's gaze darted around the shop, mind scrambling for a quick means of escape. But the weight of the presence flowing from the man in front of him held him fast. Fixing the butcher with a piercing glare, Nicholas motioned to the large brine tub in the shop's corner. Open it, he commanded. With trembling hands, the butcher pushed back the heavy lid of the tub. Inside floated several oddly shaped cuts of brined meat. It's just ham, the butcher pleaded, but the whiny edge that laced his voice betrayed the lie. Nicholas placed his hands on the wooden tub, closed his eyes, and turned his face up towards the heavens. He called, Rise up, children and the contents of the tub began to swirl and churn and steam. And in only moments, three young boys emerged from the brine, whole and healthy, looking just as they had when they first arrived on the butcher's doorstep. Thankfully, the boys had little memory of what had happened to them, and Nicholas sent them home to their families who no doubt were in some serious shock after not having seen them for seven years and them turning up virtually unchanged. And the butcher? Well, Nicholas had plans for him. Père Fouettard, as he became known, became a sort of servant to St. Nick, where Nicholas would bring gifts and treats to good children, Père Fouettard would dole out coal and beatings to children unlucky enough to land on the naughty list. So, I just hope, for your sake, you were good this year, because a beating from a child-murdering potential cannibal, that makes a lump of coal seem downright kind, doesn't it? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We have one story for you this evening, which comes from Rick Kennett. Rick Kennett is a lifelong resident of Melbourne, Australia, where he works in the transport industry and has an interest in cemeteries, ghosts, and all things spooky. He is the author of five novels and collections, and is the co-author of 472 Shane Walk, a continuation of the adventures of William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki the Ghostfinder. Though a whippet and cat owner for 25 years, he is now content to merely talk to next door's white Tom, who sometimes deigns to respond. During the 90s, he worked aboard the museum ship HMAS Castlemaine, a World War II-era minesweeper-slash-corvette, from which he gained much knowledge and inspiration for the story we'll hear tonight. Children of the Night, join me for Rick Kennett's Out of the Storm, originally published in Terror Australis, 1993. destroyer founder in the middle of the Indian Ocean, drifting bows down from out of a storm that had killed three other ships. Binoculars trained on her from the warship's bridge, and they saw she was HMAS Beringi, a minesweeper corvette missing nearly a week. The destroyer sounded her siren, fired a blank shot. No response. Beringi, silent, Dead, rolled to the troughs and crests, her bows lifting sluggishly, dipping deep. The ropes from the empty lifeboat davits trailed in the water. The canvas flap of the door to her bridge slapped against the woodwork. With her guns swinging through their arcs, the destroyer circled. Then came a beam. Those on her bridge and lining her decks saw the ugly black gash behind the four-inch gun on the foredeck of the little ship. Grapples were thrown, clanking, catching, and Beringi was boarded. The first man to hit her deck clambered downhill, forward to where the bomb or shell had struck behind the gun. What remained of the gun's crew was already black and drying, draped over the splinters of the deck and merging into the blast mark across the front of the bridge superstructure. 
At the bottom of the hole, not far below, oily water oozed around twists of jagged metal. And in odd, quiet moments, something down there made soft bumping noises. The others who boarded climbed upward to the tilted quarter-deck or down deep into the engine and boiler rooms, over hatch combings and into echoing steel alleyways, finding no one. The wireless office, crew space, lobbies, lockers, messes, wash places, small arms magazine, officers' quarters, engine spaces and boiler room, cold now, were all deserted. The hatch leading to the bosun's store forward was shut and dogged water tight. The leader of the boarding party, Lieutenant Dixon, stood beside it. He said, What's it sound like? The seamen there had already pressed their ears against the steel, hearing only their own blood and breathing. Someone thought there was a faraway tap-tap behind the silence behind the hatch. But none of this was said to Lieutenant Dixon, whose beard and close-set eyes seemed to fix his expression with a permanent... What did you call me? Look, regardless of the occasion. A leading seaman cautiously said, Sounds dry behind it, sir. He stood aside. Dixon bent to the hatch and listened. What about the seams and rivets in this bulkhead? Dry, sir. Bone dry. Hmm. He heard nothing that sounded like the sea sloshing around in there, though there was perhaps a rhythmic tap-tap somewhere in a muffled distance. Everybody get back to the last compartment and close the hatch behind you. Not being heroes or fools, the seamen did as they were told. Not being a hero or a fool himself, merely the officer in charge of the boarding party, Dixon eased off the hatch's bottom dog iron. He gripped the locking wheel central of the hatch and jerked it counterclockwise, then kicked against the steel just above the combing. No sudden wetness glistened on the bottom edge, so he eased off the remaining dog iron and inched the hatch open. An electric voice crackled across the water. What's it look like, number one? Lacking even a loud hailer to reply, Lieutenant Dixon had to shout through cupped hands to his captain as the destroyer steamed slowly down Beringi's port side. Complete derelict, sir! All dry, aft of the gyro-compass room bulkhead! It's buckled and been shored up pretty rough. I'm having it redone. He hesitated, glancing at the front of the bridge superstructure. A steam hose would be appreciated, sir. Understandable. The figure holding the microphone on the destroyer's bridge nodded, turned and spoke to others. The warship's engine room telegraphs clanged flat notes on the still sea air, and she slipped away from Beringi at increased speed to circle with Asdick pinging the depths. It was unhealthy not to keep moving in these waters. Dixon watched her glide away, all too aware of his sitting duck status. Except for the four-inch gun, which was smashed to uselessness, Beringi's only weapon was a 40-millimeter Bofors anti-aircraft gun on the boat deck aft. That and two 20-millimeter machine guns mounted one either bridge wing. The four-inch he decided could be, he jerked about startled by a sudden hollow hammering inside the dead ship. He relaxed. It was the damage control party reshoring the gyro-compass room bulkhead. He returned his attention to the four-inch gun sitting askew and jammed on its mounting, its breech block shattered by the blast that had shattered its gunners. It would have to be cut up and ditched, which would help bring up her bows. They'd need that extra freeboard if Beringi was to be steamed back. He tried not admitting it to himself, but he was unhappy in the knowledge that if they did get her underway, he would have to captain her. He'd often dreamt of a command of his own, but this was a nightmare he'd not counted on. Down below, the hammering abruptly stopped. For a second, Dixon thought the hatch had given way, and recognized in the thought an actual wish. But there was no crash, no shouts, no gush of inrushing sea. A moment more, and the hammering started again. He looked out over the near-sunken bows. Luck was with them. The sea was calming. For what it was worth, someone said a prayer before the steam hose was turned on. The job was done hastily without further ceremony. Their captain was not one to be wanting his destroyer stopped with a hose pipe draped over the side for any longer than the grisly work needed. Neither Radar nor Asdick were returning echoes, but the sea was now unusually flat and the sky clear. They were perfect targets. 
In the captain's cabin aboard Beringi, Lieutenant Dixon sat himself down at the desk to sort out the situation. In front of him, screwed to the bulkhead just above the desk, was a framed photograph showing a group of naval officers dressed in the tropical kit of short-sleeved shirts and shorts sitting forward of Beringi's four-inch gun. Dixon glanced away, then looked up again with a shock of recognition. He knew the first lieutenant pictured there a rather lanky fellow with a thin face and fair receding hair. Dixon had trained with him at a shore station before the war. For the life of him, however, he could not remember the man's name. Nevertheless, the photograph was a horrible coincidence in black and white. He returned his attention to the boarding party's reports. There were fuel oil estimates, fresh water reserves, provisions, ammunition. There were the general reports about the condition of the ship as found. Boiler room safety valve wide open, primer pins pulled from the depth charges on the quarterdeck, and abandoned ship procedures so they didn't explode as the ship goes under. All life jackets gone, sextant and logbook gone, code and recognition signal books gone, probably dumped. Another abandoned ship procedure. In fact, everything pointed to the orderly evacuation of a sinking ship. And then Beringi didn't sink. A few minutes ago, Someone had noticed that both anchors were missing, and with them, fathoms of chain, tons of weight, which, Dixon told himself, might partly explain Beringi's miraculous survival. But without engine power and a hand on her helm, he knew the little corvette should have broached to on the first storm wave and been rolled under. Strange. There was a knock on the cabin door. Come, said Dixon. He was expecting the engineer with a report on the pumps. No one entered. Yes, come in. Nothing happened. Damnation! Dixon stepped to the door and wrenched it open. In the lobby outside stood the lanky, thin face of the man in the photograph. The figure was shrouded in black. A cloak of darkness that made the thin, bloodless face seem to glow. The apparition wavered to and fro, like so much tossing flotsam. Then it suddenly swelled toward Dixon, bringing with it a cold dampness until its face pressed close to his. Leave! Dixon stumbled back, hit the chair and fell. He was on his feet again in an instant, but there was nothing now in the doorway. Feeling strange and shaky, he peered into the lobby. It was empty. He ran up the companionway to the bridge and looked wildly left and right. Who came through just then? The seaman, sweeping up smashed glass, fixed the officer with a stare of surprise. Beg your pardon, sir. Don't come the innocent with me, Tyler, Dixon snapped, slightly shrill. I'll have you on report. Sir, no one's been through that door. Not since yourself, sir, five minutes ago. The lieutenant glared at him as if daring him to betray the lie. Then he turned and banged shut the door. The captain's cabin was still empty when he returned. Nothing waiting, wavering, dark. But the lobby, an enclosed space between cabins, was cold and smelt unnaturally damp. The circling destroyer had given those aboard Beringi a sense of security, something they needed as the afternoon brought more blue skies and flat seas. The weather had made them nervous, and noticeably the most nervous of all was Lieutenant Dixon would suddenly develop the habit of glancing over his shoulder at nothing at all. Except for some pumping, which had no effect on the ship's bows-down attitude, work was proceeding well. The anchor chain winch had been unbolted and was about to be manhandled over the side. Oxy-cutting gear had been ferried over by motorboat, and demolition of the smashed four-inch was well advanced. A tarpaulin had been stretched over the punched-in deck. Steam pressure's building satisfactorily said the engineer above the hiss of the cutting torch. He paused a moment, wiping his hands down his overalls, before adding, Got the dynamo running now. There's power in the ship. Lieutenant Dixon acknowledged this with a stiff nod. How's that bulkhead? Will it take the strain once we get underway? It should, if you don't take it too quick. Four or five knots should be all right. There's no leaks, and the new shoring's holding up. But there's something knocking against that bulkhead. Just every now and then a series of taps in the flooded compartments. What do you think it is? I wouldn't like to say. 
Neither would I, Dixon replied, imagining. He glanced behind him. Nothing was there. Bloody strange, this ship, don't you think? The way she survived that storm, with this sort of damage and no crew, the way everything points to the abandonment of a sinking ship, and then the ship doesn't sink. Bloody strange. I wouldn't have expected a ship damaged like this to survive that storm, no. The engineer had wondered about that, of course. Though right now he was wondering why the first lieutenant was talking as if accusing the ship of something like deception. Just lucky, I suppose. Lucky, said Dixon to himself. Then to the engineer. As soon as they're finished with the anchor winch, detail a couple of hands to dump those depth charges. Without their primer pins, they're just so much amatol waiting on the quarter deck for the first stray bullet. We won't be lucky forever. At that moment, the winch went over the side with a mighty splash and a cheer. The bows came up, though not by much. Half an hour later, they came up more in a series of little jerks as the four-inch gun went over in four or five large slag-edged pieces. This also put the rudder and screws deeper into the water, at the same time bringing into view a jagged hole blown out on the port bow. Some oil oozed. Some flotsam drifted out. They waited and watched but nothing more emerged. Only later, when there was steam pressure and the engineer had intoned the formula, Ready to proceed, sir, did anyone notice the ship's clocks. On the bridge, in the officer's quarters and captain's cabin, in the engine room, boiler room, and ward room, all these eight-day pieces had stopped at precisely six minutes past six, and no amount of winding, tinkering, or swearing would make them work. Just on sunset, Beringi turned to the southeast to begin a five-knot waddle to Geraldton, a small port on the western Australia coast, and at three hundred miles the closest harbor. Three to four days were estimated for the voyage, weather permitting, and if things got too rough, there was always the destroyer's motorboat slung in Beringi's port-side davits. "'Bitch to steer,' said Tyler, struggling with the wheel. The comment was uncalled for, despite its truth. The Lieutenant Dixon said nothing. He stepped out into the port bridge wing to watch the destroyer, cut black against the afterglow, racing into the west on her search for Beringi's crew. Night closed in over the little ship as she plodded on with only a brilliance of stars to light her way and magnetic compasses to guide her. The wind keening through the empty window frames sounded sometimes like lost voices and sometimes like a woman's crying but hardly ever like the wind. It blew cold against the men at the engine room telegraphs, the quartermaster wrestling the wheel, the young signalman standing at the back of the bridge in the dark. Just before the ten o'clock change of watch, Dixon went out again onto the bridge wing where the wind was honest from the sea and sounded that way. The foredeck below looked a large triangle of shadow, flat save for where wind rippled the tarpaulin. All he could see of the bows was that moment of white water as they nudged waves aside. He looked astern, past the single squat funnel, past their motorboat in the davits, past the mine-sweeping derricks on the quarterdeck to the wake. At five knots, Beringi was hardly churning up the water, making the wake hard to see, making it difficult to determine any dog-legging. What he could see of it seemed straight enough. Yet the more he looked, the more he thought there was something wrong back there, some indefinite shape trailing in the wake. Callahan? The young signalman came scuttling up out of the dark. Sir? Lay aft. See if we're dragging something astern. Aye, aye, sir. The youth slid down the ladder to the main deck. Dixon ducked back onto the bridge. What's the helm feel like, Tyler? Heavy handling, sir, but that's nothing unusual. Dixon grunted, stepped to the opposite bridge wing, and looked aft. He thought he saw Callahan at the stern rails, standing beneath the derrick booms which were crossed over each other like the resting hands of the dead. But it was hard to tell what was what back there among the paravans, derricks, cables, and winches. Besides, it was dark. And was that thing still in the wake? It was hard to tell. Callahan! No one answered. Nothing moved on the quarterdeck. Then he thought he saw a face appear briefly around the funnel. One of those manning the Beaufort's gun? 
He wasn't sure. He wondered about the face and wondered why he wasn't certain who it had been. But who else could it have been? And where the hell was Callahan? Callahan! Again, nothing happened while he waited half a minute. Dixon put his head around the bridge flap. Stop both? No, belay that. He turned again as the bridge ladder rattled. Young Callahan came up slowly, hesitant, looking confused. It was this about him which made Dixon hold back from abrading him, so that instead he asked with a sense of foreboding, What did you see? Callahan shuffled his feet and was unable to meet the officer's eyes as he said, There's, there's nothing back there, sir. Dixon peered aft. The water did appear empty now, yet he was sure he'd glimpsed something. All right, get to the galley and fetch us up some cocoa. Dixon watched Callahan descend the ladder again, not so sprightly this time. Another long look aft showed nothing. He shrugged and wondered why Callahan had lied. Fifteen minutes before sunrise, Beringi went to dawn action stations. Her three guns swung through their arcs, waiting, but the sun came up in a clear sky over a smooth sea to show an unbroken horizon. The ship's clocks took no notice of time as watch followed watch throughout the day. It was six minutes past six aboard Beringi, and that was that. A story was getting around that somebody had altered one of the clocks, tired of seeing its hands standing always in the same positions. Yet later it was found showing again six past six. Late that afternoon, a seaplane droned out of the north on an apparent interception course. Those who had them raised long-barrel binoculars to see the red ball insignia on the wings and fuselage. The plane came on at a steady speed, too high for their guns, closing until even those without binoculars could see the pontoons beneath its wings. A seaplane this far out could only mean a cruiser somewhere close by, 10,000 tons of brutal steel which might come prowling over the horizon at any moment. Stop both, ordered Dixon. The engine room telegraphs rang. Beringi lost way and stopped, small and quiet, showing no wake now. The plane's shadow flickered over the ship. He must be blind, someone whispered on the bridge. But the plane droned over them, and five minutes later was a fading speck in the south. I'm taking out a ticket in tats when we get back, said one of the telegraph men, and on orders from the lieutenant pushed his lever forward again to slow ahead. Dixon sat down on the captain's stool at the back of the bridge, as the wind picked up through the windows. Just lucky, I suppose, he recalled the engineer's words of the previous day. A strange sort of luck. He went on thinking. To survive a storm and lose a crew. He couldn't help but think the word unnatural better described Beringia's luck, and wondered what it was exactly he meant by it. Thoughts linked to thoughts, leading his mind unwillingly back to that wavering dark thing in the lobby. Leave! He'd been unable to deny to himself the reality of the figure, as he wished he could, while at the same time unable to comprehend that reality. Leave! Why leave? Beringi had proved a lucky ship, so far for himself and his men, if not for her original crew. Lucky, he said softly. Beg your pardon, sir. Dixon almost jumped, but it was only Chief Bozen's mate Frude, the buffer, standing beside him in the gathering shadows and doing his job as the officer, an ad hoc officer of this particular watch. Lucky, repeated Dixon. About the plane? Yes, sir. About everything, buffer. The plane, the calm seas, lack of enemy attention, the way she survived that storm, damaged like she is and with no crew. Yes, sir. Lucky. The way he said it seemed to add, but not for her crew. And Dixon was about to ask him if he didn't think it an unnatural sort of luck when he decided not to. It would have been an odd question, especially coming from an officer and in front of other ratings. Besides, he wasn't really sure what it was he was getting at. So he said, get the chart and I'll check our course. Looks like we're in for another starry night. With that, the subject of luck and lucky ships was closed. And with it, any chance of talk straying close to dark things in lobbies. 
After sunset, Lieutenant Dixon took his sextant sightings on the starry sky he'd predicted and found Beringi's position. Leaving the buffer in charge, he retired to the Aztec cabinet to sleep the few hours until ten, when his watch would begin. The Aztec cabinet, normally the noisy heart of anti-submarine activity, was a quiet, still cubbyhole at the back of the bridge. The Aztec set itself screwed to the bulkhead, its valve innards shock smashed to uselessness its earphones hanging mute upon a hook. The oscillating quartz crystal, the actual ping machinery, lay drowned in the flooded forward compartments. Dixon sat in the operator's chair and slept. Sometime later, he awoke, or half awoke, to the distant voices of a man and a woman, fighting voices, thin telephone voices with no distinct words, but full of blame, anger, and fear. The woman sounded a hard bitch, iron hard, and the man sounded dangerously close to violence. As Dixon opened his eyes, the voices faded away, and in fading, sped up like an old gramophone wound too tight too long. To Dixon, the silence seemed worse than the voices, because it was the silence of a dead ship creeping across the ocean when she should be naturally in her grave three miles down. The bizarre fancy collided with his hope that the past few seconds with their inexplicable sounds had been a dream, just a dream. For a moment he thought the ship was dead and at the bottom of the sea and that this thing carrying him back to safety and land was a ghost, the last mad wish of dead men in two storm-lost boats. He banged his feet down on the deck. He was satisfied. Beringi was no ghost. She was real, iron real, iron hard under his feet. Yet with his acceptance of the reality of the ship came the whispering memory of a darkness-shrouded thing. It was a memory, he knew, that would be with him always, locked away in a brain cell marked, Do Not Disturb. It would do the disturbing, slipping out in the quiet moments or in his sleep to push up against his face and whisper, Leave! He wished he could leave. He wished he could pull the plug on this ugly little scow and... First Lieutenant, sir, 2200, sir, said Frude in the cabinet doorway. Very good buffer, thank you. Through the broken windows of the bridge, the stars shone bright and sharp. The sea was flat like a tabletop. No enemy shouldered over the horizon in the night, nor during the next day. As though the war was somebody else's problem a million miles away, Bringy steamed along at her five-knot waddle, and the fine weather went on and on. What did you really see back there? Lieutenant Dixon asked young Callahan in the quiet of the bridge wing. The signalman blushed. He was not a liar, not really, and Dixon knew it. I saw boats, he answered simply. For better or worse, Dixon let it go at that. During the mid-watch of the following day, with the buffer on the bridge, Dixon climbed down to inspect the bulkhead of the gyro compass room again. The wooden shoring braced and wedged against the buckled plating was still holding, and all seams were dry. Nevertheless, the bosun's store hatch had been secured behind him. The engineer had told him that the simple sit-down job of listening outside the bosun's store was unpopular with the men. Dixon didn't have to ask why. He knew. He knew as he stood in that last dry forward compartment and listened alone to the oddly timed tap-tap inside the flooded spaces. He knew as he returned to the bosun's store hatch with the rhythm still with him. He knew as he stepped over the combing and glanced back over his shoulder before slamming the hatch back into place. And in the crow's nest far above, the lookout rang down to the bridge saying, Masts dead astern! The action alarm had been ringing several seconds when Dixon hit the upper deck. Men were running, shrugging on life jackets, tying the chin straps of tin hats. The barrel of the bofers angled upward. The bridge wing machine guns were cocked and readied. Sailors took up sheltered positions with tommy guns in their sweaty hands. Above the ringing of the alarm bell, somebody shouted from the boat deck, Ship coming up astern, sir! Dixon spared only a quick look behind him glimpsing the smoke smudge of something far away coming up at a rate of knots. He spun and made for the bridge, thinking how bloody silly they all looked with what was approaching, and how brave. 
As he hit the rungs of the ladder, he yelled, Shut that bloody bell up! with a nervous vehemence that surprised him. The alarm cut off as the buffer pushed binoculars into his hands. Looks like a destroyer, sir. Even as he focused, Dixon was weighing up the chances of it being Japanese. Too near the coast, too far south. Seeing bows on it was smoke and bow wave and precious little definite in between. Signalman Callahan had the only other pair of binoculars on the bridge. He said, reading a stuttering light from the distant vessel, Message from the captain, sir. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. It's us. He lowered the glasses and, with an inexcusable breach of discipline, began to laugh aloud. Nothing had been found of Beringi's crew or boats after a thirty-six-hour search in screeching winds and crazy cross seas. Damn queer, said the captain when Dixon told him of their continuing miracle of good weather. We were battling heavy seas all the way back. Only struck calm water again half an hour before we sighted you. They made port the next day. When Beringi was dry-docked and pumped out, a body was exhumed from the forward compartments. Lieutenant Dixon was not surprised to hear that it was the body of his lanky, thin-faced acquaintance from training. He didn't ask if it had been found grasping a hammer or some such. He didn't want to know. In fact, he didn't want to know anything more about Beringi. Glad he was to be shot of her. Yet it was as if the ugly little ship held him in some horrible fascination, because he soon found himself following her fortunes. Sometimes through official reports and signals, sometimes through wardroom talk with visiting officers from other ships. From these sources, Dixon pieced together a picture of a vessel possessed of extraordinary luck and regarded with a vague uneasiness by all who served in her. There was the story of the submarine torpedo which ran beneath Beringi and hit the coastal freighter she'd been escorting. There was the story of the crewman who was constantly taking photographs of Beringi's wake. There was the story of the refitting dock gang who refused to work aboard Beringi after dark. There was the story of the native islanders who, when Beringi anchored in their bay, were reluctant to paddle out to sell their fresh fruit the way they did with other visiting warships. She sings and weeps much sad, they said. Despite the odds and hazards, Beringi steamed through the war, convoying, sweeping, patrolling in some of the most dangerous forward areas, always returning untouched by the enemy, while others around her died. On a cold, rainy day in 1961, Captain Dixon, now retired, saw Beringi for the last time. She was partly dismantled and tethered to a buoy in our harbor backwater, waiting to be towed to the breaker's yard. Dixon stood on the shore beneath the trees and looked at her a long time. Her mast was gone, as was the searchlight platform, the anti-aircraft guns, the depth-charge throwers, the clutter of gear on the quarterdeck. Many of the bridge windows were broken, setting him to wonder on what her interior looked like now. And what were those men doing assembling on her foredeck? Some of them, half-naked, looked like seamen, and some of them wore officers' caps, and all of them were transparent. In front of them, by the cable winch, stood the lanky, thin-faced lieutenant, dressed in tropical kit. He was glaring forward with his hands clenched to fists at his sides. The rain increased a moment, misting the ship from view. When he could see her again, Dixon also looked towards the bows. The woman was ugly, very ugly, a hag with scraggly stringy hair, hands like vulture claws, a face in profile, which made Dixon glad he could not see it at close quarters. Her single gray covering was ragged and spotted with red. She stood at the very stern braced against the jackstaff, staring back at the men like a cornered animal. And though there was nothing Dixon could hear save for the beat of the rain in the water, he could see she was screaming, screaming like the damned. That was Rick Kennett, Out of the Storm, 
is read by Dan Gerzinski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox as well as Tales to Terrify and has just finished narrating his eighth audiobook. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we split the silent night with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.